Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome back to the second hour of the Interpreter Radio Show, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, history, doctrine, and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint. Saints. <laughs> you can find us at interpreterfoundation.org. That's interpreterfoundation.org. Uh, tonight we have Chris Fredrickson calling in. We have David, David, <laughs> we have Robert Boylan. Sorry, I saw David down here. Uh, I was about to say David Belknap. No, he did the <laughs> article. And Robert Boylan here in studio, and I'm Bruce Webster. Uh, Robert and I were talking, and Chris, we didn't give you a heads up on this, talking about some of the attempts, the perennial, <laughs> perennial attempts to come up with naturalistic explanations for the Book of Mormon, which I think ties <laughs> in well with the chapters that we just covered in the first hour uh, and the people who try to explain away uh, how the Book of Mormon came to be. <clears throat> By my own perspective, uh, being of an age here, uh, and and I'm sure both of you can talk to this as well, is that the the same two or three basic <laughs> explanations keep are in sort of a, a ten to twenty year cycle. Uh, they you, you bring up something like the Spalding theory, it gets debunked. And then 30 years later, people will say, yeah, but what about the Spalding manuscript? It's, it's like, wait, wait, we've, we've been through this. We've been through this multiple times. Uh, and uh, something, and, uh, let, let's dive into this first. Part of the issue has to do with your fundamental assumptions. If you don't believe there's a God, <laughs> and or if you believe there's a God, but you believe, you know, the, uh, the church is a false church, is a, uh, uh, or in many cases, as, as I often see on Twitter, Church of the Devil, referring to us, then you have to come up with a naturalistic explanation because you, 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 you will not, you know, <clears throat> it doesn't matter what evidence is presented, you will not accept it. And so that sort of becomes the, the arguing point, and it often leads into, frankly, uh, very weak and... Uh, uh, uninformed and frequently intellectually dishonest <laughs> arguments against it. I, my own experience was at, again at a relatively young age reading about Sterling McMurrin, uh, who's, who was raised in a church but said, I realized at some point you, one does not get gold plates from an angel. And therefore his assumption was that, you know, Joseph Smith was a fraud, Book of Mormon's a fraud, and so on. Uh, and, and my reaction was, why not? Why doesn't one get gold plates from an angel? In other words, if, if, if you're making assumptions that block out the Book of Mormon ever being true, then no amount of evidence is going to convince you, and you're going to keep grasping at straws, is my opinion. So with that lead in, Robert. Sure. Uh, I'm going to go to a place where I don't think a lot of people will expect, and that's Luke chapter 16, the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you're familiar with it, like, uh, Lazarus is a pauper. He dies. He goes to paradise. The rich man... He, uh, because he loved wealth, not God, he goes to um, the more um, 
painful area of Abraham's bosom, basically, but he pleads with Father Abraham to send him back from the dead to warn his brothers. And like in verses 29 to 31, Christ says the following, Abraham said unto him, They are Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he, the rich man, said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So, if one could like use a Pesher or Midrash as Nephi does through Isaiah 29 that we were discussing, um, if one has the a priori, that is um, one's fundamental assumption that there is no such thing as the supernatural, you will have to, as like McMurrin in his interview with Blake Oster said, you don't get angels don't deliver gold plates to farm buys because angels from the get-go don't exist. If you have that naturalistic anti-supernatural worldview, you are forced into a box to explain everything naturalistically. Um, you see this when it comes to, say, skeptics of the resurrection. There's one, Richard Carrier, who's a Christ mythicist. He basically said, even if there was like, a, even if the evidence was so good that it was 99.9% um, conclusive that Christ rose from the dead, he would still not believe it because no one else has ever raised from the dead. So what's the assumption there? Naturalism, no such thing as a supernatural, even in the uh, face of evidence. And the same is when it comes to critics of the Book of Mormon, whether they themselves have a naturalistic anti-supernatural worldview, like certain critics of the Book of Mormon, or even those who would feign a supernatural worldview, like various Protestant and Catholic critics, who a priori believe Mormonism, uh, you know, as it's called, has to be explained away naturalistically, not supernaturalistically. Unless, of course, you're an Ed Decker uh, fundamentalist who believes it was all satanically in, um, induced, mm -hmm. you know, like Jack Schick would. But that's different. So when it comes to, like, these arguments, while explaining and discussing the evidences and the issues are important, and they are, one also has to understand that fundamentally, when it comes to many of the critics and many of the explanations of the Book of Mormon, it comes from an anti-supernatural, materialistic, uh, naturalistic worldview as well. And that does affect how critics approach and try to explain away the evidences of the Book of Mormon and try to explain its production as well. So I think that's very important for one to keep in mind because it's not simply evidence versus evidence, as important as that is. It's also a fundamental question of differing worldviews from the get-go because Latter-day Saints are, from the get-go, or a priori, supernaturalists. Yep. You know, we do believe in the supernatural. We don't believe it's just this natural world. But many of our critics are themselves naturalistic, either in their own worldview or her, at least the approach to restored gospel. And that is a very important thing because it affects how one sees the evidence as well. For instance, um, how one understands say, the Arabian Peninsula geography of the Book of Mormon. That is very consistent with the historical Book of Mormon. So Latter-day Saints... By the way, shout out to Neil Rapoli, who's done excellent work on Nahum and uh, other issues, um, like the um, Ishmael, Ishmael yeah. um, inscription as well at uh, Nahum. Um, we can look at that and say, this is very strong evidence of something that's very consistent with the Book of Mormon that cannot be explained away by Joseph Smith and his knowledge in the 19th century. And we don't have to engage in gymnastics. Critics have to. Or you can see like the uh, coping and seeing those the kids would say, when horse bones uh, were dated by Wade Miller and a bunch of other non-LDS only last year, you know, in the um, article in the non-LDS journal, you know, um, because there cannot be any evidence for the Book of Mormon that cannot be explained away from a 1830 worldview. And what I mean by that is, like, if there's something that cannot be explained away and can only make sense if there was a historical Nephi, that's the game over for the naturalistic critics, and that would be, like, just uh, consistent with our worldview as well. So I think um, I'll let Chris speak after this, but again, it's not simply 
and I say this as someone who's engaged in apologetics, it's not simply the questions, it's also the assumptions underlining these questions as well that one has to examine as well yeah. and keep in mind. And, and before, Chris, we turn it over to you, I just have to say this to Robert before I forget it. I had a sudden flash of Mormon R doing Jack Chick parody pamphlets. I'll, I'll tell Josh. We'll tell Josh that. that. Yeah. See what you come up with. He, he oh. loves Jack Chick stuff. Okay, yes. I thought just suddenly <laughs> like, oh, that would be so fun. Chris, your thoughts? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's fascinating. I, I kind of see these, you know, criticisms of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. They're tired. They're worn. They're, they really have been debunked by recent and current scholarship. The, the tragedy is, is that people... We're, people have been so heavily socialized in the world we live in today, many people, to just simply reject the Book of Mormon without ever opening its pages and without doing any research or studying any of the current research on the Book of Mormon. And so, but these, and, and that's what allows individuals to kind of repurpose these tired, worn out, and obviously debunked arguments that they use over and over to try to discredit the Book of Mormons, try to discredit Joseph Smith and the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, recent and current scholarship, it basically hauls out any attempt to debunk the Book of Mormon. For instance, um, Mesoamerican research these days, as we've started tapping into all the research that's being done in Mesoamerican ancient societies, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, we've talked about this book before, but the Book of Mormon is History by Brant A. Gardner taps into that research and just is absolutely exquisite in helping us better understand that world in ways that Joseph Smith could not possibly have understood it. Word studies make it very clear that, that these books have different authors, uh, chiasmus, parallelism, all those kinds of things. There's no way Joseph Smith could have understand. All of those are found in the Book of Mormon. Geography studies... Um, you know, certainly do make a case for these, the growth of civilizations where heretofore we didn't see that um, until really very recently in um, some of those Mesoamerican regions. Anti-kingship practice, I mean, I mean, kingship practices, we could go on and on and on. And then the connection to many of those ancient um, ceremonies in the Old Testament, those, you know, those uh, traditions and rites. And all of that's found in the pages of the Book of Mormon. And then, you know, the one argument that maybe they could make, but that's totally implausible, too, is that, oh, it was given to Joseph Smith by Satan to deceive the world. Well, every 1.7 verses in the Book of Mormon mentions or testifies of Jesus Christ. So you can't really see Satan, you know, bringing forth a book that's going to testify of the one person that he is the greatest enemy of, Jesus Christ. But I think what the problem is, again, is that people have been, you know, have been socialized to just, without even opening a page of the book, to reject it and to align themselves with these arguments without doing any research on their own. Uh, and, and added to that, and it's interesting how, how silent critics have been. This has been Brian Stubbs' uh, philological research on uh, Semitic uh, elements in Uto Aztecan <laughs> language, which was which was not published by a church <laughs> publication. This is an actual uh, a you know he has peer reviewed studies and so on where he's, he's showing the uh, uh, 
explanatory power of Semitic and Egyptian in Udo Aztecan. Uh, people don't like it because it, it, it goes against uh, all the all the standard theories, and of course this is this is common in archaeology. Witness horses, of course, <laughs> you know, and the the issue there. Uh, one of the interesting things I've run across is that a lot of established Native American tribes say we had horses before the Spaniards came. What's what's this whole thing about <laughs> the you know, Spaniards brought the horses? We we had them long before they ever showed up. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> but it's it's. Uh, it's sort of the seven seven blind men with the elephant is is what a lot of book Mormon criticism is like. It's like, oh, hey, you know, I've got this tail. This is obviously, you know, this this couldn't be a large beast because we've got this here, mm -hmm. and they they ignore the other ninety five ninety eight percent of the Book of Mormon. They have no explanatory power for that, other than to wave their hands a bit, uh, and uh, as uh, as as you just pointed out, Chris. It's it's a constant recycle. In fact, Hugh Nibley in his uh, uh, review of anti-Mormon literature uh, published, collected in Tinkling Brass and Clashing Symbol, is that the, the name of the, the title? Yeah. Uh, uh, talks about how basically all the various uh, anti-Mormon critics all tend to debunk each other because they want their explanation <laughs> to be the correct one. So, you know, was was Joseph a an ignorant simpleton? Was he a brilliant genius, which I I've seen show up lately on on Twitter? And it's like, you know, <clears throat> we, we talked about this, I think, last month. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. his his brother uh, Hiram went to Princeton. Well, no, he, he, he went to he went to an <laughs> associated academy for yeah. what a year. Yeah. Moore's Academy yeah. that was associated yeah. with Durham. But it wasn't yeah. Durham itself. Anyway, uh, so it's it's. Uh, it's it's why I tend to be dismissive. I mean, tin plates—that's for you. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to, I tend to be dis, dismissive of of most anti Book of Mormon criticism because it's intellectually shallow. It does not fully engage with the literature. In fact, it usually desperately mm -hmm. ignores mm -hmm. the literature. Robert. There was an excellent talk from either the Fair Conference in 2002 or 2003 by Dan Peterson, uh, The Protein Joseph Smith. And he was basically like given an overview, like a recent book that came out edited by Metcalf and Vogel, American Apocrypha. And basically there's like eight or nine essays that were in the uh, book. You know, and to be fair, it's a cut above the standard anti-LDS fair. Yeah. But like he basically said like all the various theories in the essays contradict one another. They're not, uh, you can't really mesh all of them together. For instance, the very first essay was on automatic writing, which even the editors don't believe explains the Book of Mormon. But it's basically, it's very popular on YouTube recently, but basically the Book of Mormon is an example like automatic writing and the author um, basically like, um, discussed like other examples of lengthy books being produced by automatic writing but that doesn't really explain the translation process of the book of mormon where like um it was on and off on and off as opposed to just being on for like a very long period of time you know um then there's like um david wright's essay on the isaiah variants in the book of mormon pretty sophisticated essay but that would only really explain away the isaiah chapters in the book of mormon not the narrative in the book of mormon then there's the, some essays by Dan Vogel trying to um, explain the Trinate witnesses. Like, um, he basically concedes, yeah, they were honest men. They did uh, believe that they had visions, but it was true hypnosis or, um, you know, and all that's kind of nonsense. Has mass hypnosis ever actually occurred? Yeah. 
that, that's the thing. And like he, he was relying on like second and third hand sources. It was a really poor essay. And of, and there's like um, Robert Price, who's like a Christ mythicist and used to be a share in the Jesus Seminar. He actually had an interesting essay basically arguing Joseph Smith was sincere. It's just like pseudepigraphical authors like say one Enoch mm-hmm. were sincere. But he was trying to like, um, you know, he was inspired in the naturalistic way, you know, like uh, it, it was kind of a big convoluted, but like pretty interesting essay. But here's the thing, like all those theories in one way or another contradict one yeah. another. And like when you have like, I mentioned Dan Vogel, um, you know, he holds the view that Joseph Smith was a pious fraud. Basically, he came up with the Book of Mormon to unite his family, but eventually he believed these lies. And but you compare and contrast that with say, oh, and he also believed Joseph Smith somehow concocted tin plates or some other metal plates that, again, goes against the fray of history because, and you compare and contrast that with, say, Fawn Brody, author of No Man Knows My History, who Joseph Smith was a conscious fraud all throughout his prophetic career, but he was so, such a megalomaniac, he actually came to believe these lies as well. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. When it comes to, say, the recent scholarship, and Book of Mormon scholarship has exploded since the 70s, thanks to Farms, Welsh, Peterson, and other heavy hitters, um, the Book of Mormon has become more and more plausible as a historical doc- as a translation of a historical document than a 19th century fraud. Um, you know, we kind of mentioned horses. We kind of mentioned, like, say, the discovery of Nahum and Bountiful, plausible canons mm-hmm. for the River Layman Valley Lemuel, really cool stuff when it comes to, say, the Ishmael inscription. Um, and, who, you know, um, and, you know, we were discussing, say, the um, destruction that was prophesied to come when Christ came. There's an excellent book by Jerry Grover, who himself is a geologist. Um, Geology of the Book of Mormon, 2015. He makes it available on his website, uh, bmslor.org. Um, Book of Mormon Study and Language Research, basically that's what it stands for. But he discuss- it's a very dry book. It's not the easiest to read, but it's really important one should read it because he kind of shows like there was a natural, natural destruction like earthquakes and volcano around Book of Mormon land around the time of Christ. Yeah. That kind of fits very well what we find in Third Nephi 89 and in the passages in Second Nephi where he prophesies of the destruction, very consistently um, volcanism and all of that, yep. but cannot really be explained away naturalistically because not only is it accurately described from a perspective of someone who's experiencing it, but it's in the right time and in the right location as well. And early Joseph Smith believed the Book of Mormon was continental, not limited, if yeah. you will. Um, so again, this kind of goes against it. So like... Um, Again, if one has a supernatural worldview and they allow for the possibility of angels with gold plates counter Sterling McMurrin, you know, and they come to accept, yeah, the Book of Mormon is plausible as a translation from the 19th century of an ancient Near Eastern Mesoamerican document, this all makes sense. But if you're a naturalistic critic and you have the a priori assumption, it has to be explained away <laughs> naturalistically. Uh, good luck to you. And <laughs> one other Well, thing, it's, it's harder and harder. And, and part of the thing, the. the one of the key books here is From Darkness into Light, which is the history of the translation. Excellent book, yeah. And the, it's, it draws the noose very tight. Yeah. In other words, all the alternate explanations that try to introduce Sidney Rigdon or Oliver Cowdery. Or a working draft yeah, of the Book working of Mormon. Draft, there's zero historical exactly. evidence. Contrary. Anyway. And, and I'm sure Chris wants to get in, so yeah. like, I was just wondering, I'll let you speak after this, Chris. I'm sorry. But... Uh, one of the one of my favorite topics is like linguistic issues when it comes to the Book of Mormon. Uh, Matthew Bowen, especially in the last ten years, oh, yeah. has done excellent work because not only has he shown various names and words in the Book of Mormon have an authentic Hebrew and or Egyptian etymology, 
the Book of Mormon riffs on the Egyptian or Hebrew meaning in parallelisms and word plays and so forth that cannot be explained away because Joseph Smith did not know Hebrew. And although one can make the case... Or like, Egyptian. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, one could make the case, well, Cindy Rigdon did. But like, how could they English. have actually done the word plays and so forth yeah. in in ways that parallel, like, say, the original language text of the Book of Mormon? One example is Jershon, where it comes from Yerush, to inherit own land of... Uh, and Jerusalem only said to be given as a land of inheritance to the anti-Nephi Levites on a couple of times. So this is like intentional uh, parallelism in the text, consistent with, say, the Hebrew Bible and other Semitic-flavored documents, but something that cannot be uh, faked over and over again by Joseph Smith. Again, like, everyone should check out Matthew Bowen, B-O-W-E, and his excellent work on the on the mask on the Book of Mormon. And also there's a book that came out on the names and words in the Book of Mormon by... Um, the Interpreter Foundation that has the has um, proposed etymologies of all the names and words in the Book of Mormon. Really good resource as well. So, yeah. Chris. Yep. And um, Matt Bowen's um, book, Thanks to Interpreter Foundation, is hot off the press. So, um, on those uh, names, Book of Mormon names, and so that's something that is absolutely extraordinary. You know, I, I want to jump back to something you said, Bruce, when you talked about how a lot of the critics of the Book of Mormon, the coming forth the Book of Mormon, um, there it's intellectually shallow, and I think that's kind of a generous assessment, because as a historian, I would say that it, they're intellectually dishonest, because what they do is they excise any research that and any evidence that doesn't support their predetermined a priori claims. Uh, and that's not how historians, I mean, we're seeing more and more of that being a historical problem in the world we live in today, but nevertheless, the, the, purpose, the, the purpose of, you know, it, historian is to do research into something, to accumulate evidence, to do research, and then to draw conclusions from the body of evidence before them. It's not to cherry pick, it's not to pick and choose things that you can kind of warp or that you can interpret to support your claims, but it is to present all the evidence before us. And critics of the Book of Mormon cannot do that anymore because the abundance of evidence that we've just mentioned fully supports the veracity of the Book of Mormon. It's breathtaking what we are seeing in our day, and I can't remember who said it, or when, or the setting, but I remember one of the brethren saying once that we would, there would come a time when the evidence would be so overwhelming David to Wimmer. the truth of the Book of Mormon, and yet people would reject it anyways. And we're at that point in the world that we live in today. Uh, yeah, I, I believe that was actually David Whitmer, because he was kind of worried about, like, say, the uh, civilizations as described in the Book of Mormon. He thought, like, you know, that would seem, like, farcical to, like, uh, the understanding of the time, but he was told, like, uh, there would be evidence of that coming forth. So I think it may be David Whitmer you're thinking about there, Chris. I could be mistaken, but it sounds like Whitmer. No. Yeah. Yeah. And he's right. He's right. I mean, if you are really going to look at the evidence that is out there, there's just no way that you can say anything but this had to come from some kind of a heavenly source. And because it testifies so frequently and so um, pervasively and is a witness of Jesus Christ, then this is something indubitably from God. Right. Sure. Uh, just, to, uh, just to build off on what Chris was saying. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say to benefit mankind on the earth today and to bless their lives in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. When it comes to say, the strength of any proposed hypothesis for any topic, um, it comes down to, like, say, the explanatory part can explain the totality of something. Like, um, you know, I can mention David Wright's essay, and most of that would explain, like, say, the Isaiah passages in the Book of Mormon, but it does not explain, like, the historical narrative in the text and many other issues. Uh, I'm unaware of any working model out there that would actually explain the totality of the Book of Mormon. For instance, take the um, the one of the OG explanations for the Book of Mormon, the Spalding theory. The um, of course, that's absolute uh, nonsense. It's because we have Spalding manuscript. We do, and <laughs> there was no mythical second manuscript. You know, yep. uh, uh, the, to be fair, to your credit, the Tanners and Dan Vogel have done excellent work refuting the Spalding theory. <laughs> but uh, I'm not joking. Like yeah. many critics have, think it's nonsense. It kind of gives me a bad name. But let's just say that's let's just ignore. Like uh, let's just say we don't have the attacks and we're from like, 1830. Yeah. At most, that might explain like maybe like the historical narrative. It does not explain the theology. So they had to throw in like, well, the Spalding manuscript was expanded by Sidney Rigdon to to include the theological treatises in the uh, text as well. Okay, well, that doesn't really explain a lot of the other things that's going on here, like, say, the various discoveries and so forth. So, like, uh, the more... And once we kind of found the Spalding theory, um, either critics had to be intellectually honest and say, like, okay, that was nonsense, or come up with the mythical second manuscript. And I'm sure there's going to be a mythical third manuscript, if, uh, you know, in the future as well. Like, uh, you know, you have Q1 and Q2 in biblical studies. I'm sure you have Spalding manuscript 1, Spalding manuscript 2, you know. And, you know... Um, it, it's only going to be a matter of time, you know. But um, when it comes to, like, say, other explanations, the most common is, like, um, from Vogel, from Tanner, is basically the Book of Mormon is an interaction with and critique of the 19th century worldview coupled with King James quotations and so forth. And that might explain, like, say, the secret combinations between, like, an illusion to, like, say, the anti-masonry of the time or other topics, like, um, you know... Uh, we were talking about, like, say, the I, uh, the Bible, the Bible. That might be, like, in deconstruction of, say, the Protestantism of the time and interaction with the theology of the time. Okay, so that might explain some of it, but it does not explain, like, say, Sorensen's work on the Mesoamerican same to Book of Mormon. Yeah. That does not explain the way the work of Aston, Potter, Wanton, Rapoli at all on the Arabian Peninsula geography. It does not explain the way, say, the Seal of Mulek. Like, how could Joseph Smith go against the common reading of the Bible at the time, like, all the sons of uh, Zedekiah were killed, say that there was a guy called Mulek, and he's terephoric, that he's the uh, hypercritic, that he's the name without the divine name element, actually matches the son of Zedekiah in the seal that was discovered only a couple of years ago. That's kind of a really cool thing that's often overlooked. And the post other things like non-King James Hebraisms yeah. and a lot of really important stuff as well. How does that explain... So how does like being well-equipped with, say, the King James and... Uh, interacting with the 19th century worldview, how does that explain away a lot of the other things as well? For, so, regardless of some debates internal to Latter-day Saints, like a Tide versus Lute translation of the Book of Mormon and some other geographical topics, at least we do have a working model that explains away it because we believe it's based. It's a translation of an ancient document and Nephi did exist and so forth. You know, that's... But when it comes to the critics, I'm unaware of like any good, solid working model to explain the entirety of the text... Uh, and that's like a huge problem from the get-go as well, mm -hmm. that we are in the enviable position of not having to worry about. Because to prior an analogy of, say, World War One, we have our little um, airplane, you know, in the uh, air looking for the dogfight. They still um, are trying to, like, uh, get their plane uh, f uh, flying, if you will. 
and it turns out it's just a cardboard box. It's not a real plane after all. Mm -hmm. The uh, another. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say another. No, I'll go first. Uh, Another common explanation, and I see this a lot on Twitter, is, oh, he was cribbing from, and they named some particular literary source, Uh, you know, Shakespeare, The Great War, whatever. The the best essay in that still is the one that uh, Jeff Lindsay did 20 years ago called One Day in the Life of Joseph Smith, Amazing Translator of the Book of Mormon. In which he it shows him and Emma sitting around saying, "Let's take this phrase from Shakespeare, okay?" And we'll, you know, three words. We'll use that. And we'll do this, and it shows it's a it's a brilliant uh, reductio ad absurdum of this whole theory because it shows that once again all the various critics and their claimed sources contradict each other, and none of them even begin to scratch the totality. Chris, I'm sorry, I'm going to hand it to Robert for a second. I'll be very Chris, Chris, but like uh, Jeff also has an excellent essay, Was the Book of Mormon Plagiarized from Wolf Women's 1855 Leafs of Grass? And (laughs) he pretends to be like a critic, like John Ankerberg, John Weldon type, but using the same methodology, critics claim Joseph Smith plagiarized from, say, View of the Hebrews, or in modern times, like the uh, Book of Napoleon, or these other works as well. Uh, a better case can be made that the 1855 Leaves of Grass explains the Book of Mormon like, say, six and seven word parallelisms and thematic parallelisms. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's nonsense. It's just, yeah. Any, I, I'm sure, like, uh, back in Ireland, like for English class, we had to do like comparative studies. And one of the, we had to do comparative studies of three works Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Dancing the Movie and um, a play called The Play by the Western World, which is not as bad as it, uh, uh, it was set in the Irish rural yeah. side in the 19th century, and another work I forget, um, I think it was Wuthering Heights, and absolutely unrelated works, but they had parallels with one another, but they were meaningless, you know, and parallels appear all throughout the text. It's basically parallelomania, to borrow the uh, term. But uh, yeah, uh, shout out to Jeff, he has a great sense of humor, but it does kind of show in a very subversive way how nons- nonsensical the critical case is. Chris? Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. I was I was just going to appreciate your comments. Um, I was just going to say that one of the things that just is stunning to me with regards to the production of the Book of Mormon is that Joseph Smith never sat down and backtracked. Uh, when I'm writing a book or an article, what I'll do is I'll set aside a good period of time to write. Robert, I'm sure you do the same thing. And then I will go backwards a little to get caught up to speed to where I am. Right now I'm reading the Iliad again because it doesn't everybody. But, you know, there's a, I've got a list of the Greeks and the Trojans and the gods that are all major characters or semi-major characters in this, you know, incredible um, story of the Trojan War. And um, it's complex, but it's simplistic in comparison to the amount of characters and the storylines and the doctoral reification and reworking and the way that it is, you know, that, that it's, it's connected from one, um, you know, from Nephi to Alma. I mean, the connections there are just absolutely extraordinary. And Joseph Smith never rewrote one word. Well, you know, he did. He changed certain words over time. But generally speaking, he sat down and he wrote it. It was given to him by revelation, and that was it. And then he moved on from there. 
the other thing about the Book of Mormon is that <clears throat> it doesn't contradict itself. And as I said, it's a very, very complex work. Not only the characters, but the doctrine, the geogra geography. I mean, everything that's just, it's very complex, and it never contradicts itself. That alone, to me, is just absolutely breathtaking. And, you know, just one testimony. Of course, you know, when all is said and done, it's the testimony that comes as you read and study the book and as you dig deep into the doctrine and what it teaches us about Jesus Christ and how it teaches us to become disciples of Jesus Christ. But I am more and more enamored with all of these great evidences that prove to us without a shadow of a doubt that this book could only be written under the inspiration of heaven. Yeah. The uh, Saturn and I and our... our nightly Book of Mormon readings uh, for scriptures and prayer are going through Messiah right now, which, which has an incredibly complex narrative. You have nested mm -hmm. records, you have parallel records, you have these different groups and different time views that, that they all diverge and then they all come back together again at the end. Uh, it's quite remarkable. I've also, uh, and I, I'm, I won't go into detail here because I think I mentioned this uh, in one of our recent past shows, but I, I did an article called New Light on Book of Mormon Origins back in 2008. Uh, I happened to be, Sandra and I were again going through the war chapters in Alma, and for my own studies, I was reading uh, The Campaigns of Alexander by Arian, and I said, oh my gosh, the parallels here uh, are extensive, and I actually wrote an article with about, oh gosh, 20, 25 parallels here. Uh, and it's, it's things such as uh, <clears throat> both volumes focus heavily on a series of battles stretching out over years between two major civilizations that have long-standing conflicts with each other. These battles involve large armies, each under the direction of a major political slash military leader. These armies directly clash with each other in a series of major battles. Some of the battles take place at or across a major river. Both volumes describe an army led by a young, brilliant, brave military commander in his 20s who inspires his men, who wins virtually all of his battles, usually with much fewer losses than the other side, who is himself on occasion wounded and who dies at his relatively young age. Both volumes written by authors who have a very high opinion of said military companion. Complete, you know, complete text of, the, basically, I go through all this, and I wrote it satirically, but it's, <coughs> in retrospect, it was, it was actually showed how authentic the warfare in uh, the Book of Mormon is in terms of its time setting and its derivation versus uh, any warfare that Joseph Smith would have been familiar with through the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. Uh, his, his, you know, whatever, what, whatever veterans he talked to, whatever exposure he had to U.S. military history, would have been vastly different. Robert? Although it came out like uh, in 1990, so like 34 years ago now, um, the late Bill Hamblin, who was awesome, he edited oh, yes, a volume, yes. Warfare, Warfare in the Book of Mormon, yes. which I believe is actually available online now. Um, it was out of print and very expensive when he was, I have a copy. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he actually autographed my copy, and also in the inscription, I'm sorry it costs so much. But there's been a lot of advances since then as well, like a, like a Brent Garner's work. But the Warfare in the Book of Mormon, as you know, is like, it is reflective of Asian Near Eastern and also Asian American concepts as well. Yeah. And we do know, like, Joseph light military parades and so forth. But none of the parades of, say, the Nauvoo Legion or any of his uh, purported recollections to his mother about, like, the Book of Mormon peoples um, 
if you see, if you read our memoirs, that sometimes comes up, matches what we have. But what we have in the Book of Mormon is actually very reflective of uh, Mesoamerica, which I don't believe he understood to be the Book of Mormon lands, at least yeah. initially, but also the ancient Near East. Yeah. And also related to that, like um, Jack Welch has a great book, um, I'll just pop pick up the name it's on the legal cases in the book of mormon yes. that's actually available yeah. on uh, scripture central's archive yeah the legal cases in the book of mormon byu press mm-hmm. and the neil a maxwell institute 2008 but it's on the uh, book of mormon central archive as well he also discusses like um the legal cases of say murder and other instances like blasphemy laws in the book of mormon and it fits modern day scholarship on these ancient concepts as well even the murder of well the killing not really murder the staying up Laban and yep. its legal background as well and a host of other things as well. So like, as Chris was saying, like the Book of Mormon is actually a very complex text, as you know yourself as well, with the internal consistency. Uh, and I'll end on this, like in Mosiah 29, when the kinship is about to end, Kin Mosiah gives a explanation of like the dangers of um, a wicked king and so forth. But we do know he read the Jaredite record. He actually is borrowing from the Jaredite record but all these warnings only become explicated in the book of Eter several hundred pages after Mosiah 29. Yeah. So again, this is very consistent with like a dictated text and a physical copy, if you will, being translated supernaturally, of course, uh, to explain away the uh, very complex internal consistency as well, as well as the external evidences that have uh, been uh, discovered, especially since the 1970s, because Book of Mormon scholarship was like... Um, very few and far between until like about the 40s and 50s, and you nibbly will help uh, yeah. pick up the speed. But since then, like it's well, nib- oh, nibbly picked up speed, and then when President Benson, in uh, when he became prophet of the church, uh, his very first conference address was, "We're under condemnation because we're not treating the Book of Mormon seriously," uh, and that mm-hmm. that opened the door to to much more expansive and uh, church supported and funded Book of Mormon research. Chris. No, I was just going to say Joseph Smith didn't even have a whiteboard <laughs> where he could take track. <laughs> he, he couldn't even afford pa- paper and pencil, let alone a whiteboard, to keep track of all these com- the complexity that you find in the Book of Mormon. And, you know, so, yeah, that was all. Just a little snide comment. Yeah, yeah but you do see it, like, in the extant printer's manuscript, where, like, even critics, like, say, Dan Vogel, when he criti- criticizes Spalding theory enthusiasts, because if you hold to the Spalding theory or some other theory, you have to believe it's not a dictated text, it's actually a read text. Joseph Smith is um, not Oliver at all is, like, reading the text. But what we have with the original manuscript is consistent with, like, a dictated yeah. text in terms of, say, the mistakes and the mis- Real-time hearings. corrections. Exactly. Time, yeah. But what's rather interesting, Chris did touch upon it, like, although did Joseph Smith did make a few changes here and there to, like, clarify things, there was never any substantial change. Like, there's no change that actually mm-hmm. affects the narrative of the Book of Mormon. No. You could read the 1830, you could read the printer's or original manuscript and the 1981 editions in 2003 now. And you would still end up with, say, the same narrative, the same theology, and so forth. So it's rather interesting. Like uh, there was no substantial change, and we see this at the original printer's manuscript, where the only changes would be, like, say, misspellings, and often Joseph Smith just spelling out the proper name, which is um, yeah. not that often. Um, proper names seem to have been like uh, carefully spelled out, but everything else, like um, like how genealogy was misspelled, and I think everyone knows how, can't spell genealogy. Um, so you <laughs> have all the, spelled. yeah, so you have the variant spellings <laughs> in the original printer's manuscript yeah. of Scouts in this show. And so again, it's consistent with a dictated text, and as Chris noted, there's no going back or forth, yeah. you know, beyond, once, the, uh, once the section of text has been produced. 
And I think in the, I believe it was 1837 was, was one of his first revisions. He, he, I'm not sure I want to say modernized, but he basically made some of the words less archaic. They were the same words. Uh, there were less folksy. There was a few like a traveling that went to traveling, you know, uh, and, uh, I think he actually eliminated some of the, and it came to passes, uh, between, oh. 18, between 1830 and 1837. But as you said, but no, zero, zero impact on, on the narrative, mm -hmm. uh, the story, the complexity or anything like that. It was, it was, uh, uh, you know, he, he wanted to, to sort of, <laughs> he sort of did his own little modernization from from an 1837 point of view of the original narration. Chris? No, but, but it was really nothing particularly telling. And like I said, no doctrinal impact, no impact really on the text, but it was just very simple, simple changes. Joseph Smith didn't even do the punctuation for the book. Oh, yeah. You know. <clears throat> and so, you know, like I said, <laughs> yeah, 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 the Grand Impress. Um, there's, so there's there's no uh, uh, you know there's only real one explanation for the book as we have mentioned yep. previously. Okay, I think we've 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 addressed that. Uh, let's see. 